Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. I'm Mick Garris. Welcome to the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything, and there's a good chance I'll answer. We do this Q&A segment every other week in between our interview shows. It's a chance to talk about any of the projects I've worked on as a writer, producer, director, or any subjects you'd like me to tackle. Send your questions to us on Instagram at postmortemgram, or on Twitter at postmortemmg, or directly to our producer Joe Russo at Joe Russo Tweets. And speaking of Joe, he's still on location directing his first movie, so I will be handling your questions all on my own. Before we get to your questions, though, let me just take care of a little business. I'm really excited that we're finally about to unleash our film Nightmare Cinema to the public at large. We've been playing it at festivals around the world, and I could not be more gratified by the reception it's been getting. It goes out in general, released in theaters, and on VOD on June 21st. This is an anthology movie by five directors from around the world. Alejandro Brugues from Cuba, David Slade from the UK, Ryuhei Kitamura from Japan, and Joe Dante and myself from the US. There are several special events around the film's release, and I want to make sure you're aware of them. First up, I'll be at the Overlook Film Festival in New Orleans to screen the film, as well as recording a new post-mortem episode with a live audience. The festival runs May 30th to June 2nd. I will also be at the Portland Horror Film Festival to screen the film at the historic Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon, and it takes place June 5th through the 8th. As a prelude to the release of Nightmare Cinema, there will be a special three-film marathon at the Hayworth Theater in Los Angeles on June 14th, featuring early films by Joe Dante, Alejandro Brugues, and myself. One of the Dead, Piranha, and Sleepwalkers will be screening. We'll all be there to answer your questions. And finally, the Los Angeles cast and crew screening of Nightmare Cinema will be open to the public on June 20th, the night before its official release. Joe, Alejandro, Ryuhei, and I will all be there. Unfortunately, David Slade is off on location shooting and won't be able to attend. All right, now let's get to your questions. At Galactic Scumbag loves the music in writing the bullet and wants to know more about your process for picking and selecting needle drop music for your movies. Um, that's interesting because in early days, well, when I was 18, I was a member of a band called Horse Feathers, a progressive rock band. We did all original music and, and uh, music has always been a big part of my life. I did that for about seven or eight years with uh, my four compadres. And it was important to me. And I was also a music journalist at the time and a student of popular music and uh, interviewed people like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, uh, 
the kinks uh you know you name it lots of lots of dead rock stars too um but music is really an important part of my life and of film uh there is no better way to make a shortcut to an emotional connection uh than through music and in writing the bullet in particular uh that story that Stephen King wrote that it was based on was published in 1999. And I set the film in 1969 because it had some themes that I thought were really important to that era. And uh, it was a very personal time to me in my uh, growing up and maturation, if there is such a thing as maturation in my life. But um, the songs meant something. Everything was important to the era. And because that film was set in 1969, I wanted to evoke that era with songs from that year. Um, it opens with the zombies time of the season, which is one of my favorite uh, pop songs of the era. Uh, and virtually all of the songs were 1969. But you have to walk a very careful tightrope because licensing songs, especially well-known songs, especially now, is extraordinarily expensive. And uh, it's very difficult to be able to find something that you can afford that strikes a familiar chord with an audience in, in a way that, that I hoped to be able to do. So uh, we got almost all of the songs that I had written into the screenplay uh, from that era. The one thing that I didn't get was um, John Lennon's Instant Karma, with John Lennon and the Plastic Omino Band. Uh, the Beatles play an important part thematically in writing the bullet in the film, not the short story. And uh, I really hoped to end the movie with an elegy that was, um, you know, the late John Lennon and make an emotional connection there between life and death and pop music in a way. Um, so I had to submit it to Yoko Ono, who liked it a lot. So we got the okay to use it uh, at the end of the film. However, the licensing fee was $50,000, which would have been the most expensive thing in the movie, uh, other than paying for the right to use Stephen King's story. So we just couldn't afford it and ended up using the Youngbloods uh, get-together, which I think maybe even more emotional, though it may not have hit the nail on the head as, as uh, powerfully as uh, Instant Karma would have. I think emotionally it's an even better song for the closing of a movie and really plays into the elegy I was going for. But uh, even in the stand, Don't Fear the Reaper, which Stephen King had written into it, was a great way to launch the mood of, uh, set the mood of the movie, of the story we were telling. So uh, music has always been a very important part of the films that I do. And the composers I've worked with from Nicholas Pike onward um, have, have really been, well, Richard Band is amazing. Um, you know, uh, uh, Bernstein, um, all, of, all of the composers I've worked with have done really exceptional work in embroidering an emotional fabric that helps complete the movie. At Duckman wants to know what your oddest job ever was. 
I don't think I've had a job that wasn't odd, even before I was a filmmaker. Well, maybe the only one that wasn't odd was working in record stores in Tower Records in my youth, but that was all a part of my musical uh, experience. Um, but uh, certainly the most complicated job ever was The Stand, which lasted forever and changed every single day. Um, and uh, I don't know. Everything you do when you're making films and television is out of the ordinary. So I'm not so sure if I can answer that really in a satisfying way. Um, at Smikowski asks if you'd ever be open to doing audiobook readings of your novels. Well, the timing for that question is interesting. I'm, I'm wrapping up a deal right now to do a uh, collection of the short stories in my first book, A Life in the Cinema, as an audiobook. Years ago, when the book was first published, uh, and I'd been working on The Stand, and I'd been working on The Shining, uh, I had relationships, have relationships, with uh, several of the actors from there. Um, and we actually got together and recorded some of those short stories, uh, and then never did anything with them. Miguel Ferrer uh, from The Stand, who uh, is no longer with us, unfortunately, the great Miguel Ferrer. He read one of my stories, Chocolate, which became my Masters of Horror episode of the first season. Uh, Stephen Weber read a couple of them, who was the star of The Shining. And then Matt Frewer, who's the actor I've worked with more than any other, he read a couple of the stories. And I did one of my own. But a new company uh, is very interested in doing uh, an audiobook of all of the stories from that first volume. So I, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be reading the, uh, the remaining stories that uh, we did not record from that book. And so A Life in the Cinema, the audiobook, will be coming soon to you. And beyond that, um, I have a new book that... Uh, will be coming out via Fangoria called Awful People later this year, and uh, I look forward to doing readings of those stories as well. And finally, at Astro Toaster asks, how did you become vegan? First off, let me say that I am not a proselytizing vegan. This is something that's an entirely personal choice. I don't go out and try and shame people uh, into not eating meat, anything like that. <clears throat> you know, I certainly ate animals for the majority of my life, but um, I was a vegetarian for several years, uh, and then the last seven or eight years have been vegan, mainly because I love animals. Um, these days, in our evolutionary course, we've gotten to a point where it's really easy to have protein substitutes and things that are uh, allow you to eat ethically. And, um, you know, the first thing really was seeing a cow and its expression being the same expression as I'd see on the face of my dog. Um, at first, it was just cutting out eating the animals. And uh, then a couple of my friends were vegan, and they seemed to be doing quite well at it. Um, it wasn't, again, an attempt to, to be healthier, although that is certainly a very strong byproduct of, of going vegan. But it was, it was that choice. I thought, I didn't tell anybody, 
but I thought I'm going to try making the move to give up dairy and all uh, animal products, including wearing animal products. I, I thought, I'll try this for a week and see if I can do it. And that week turned into a month. And then after several months, I thought, yeah, this is something I think I can do permanently. When you're traveling, and I do travel a lot around the world, sometimes it becomes very difficult. So, um, you know, I'm not a Nazi about it. If uh, I have to compromise a little to be um, socially comfortable. Uh, for example, I was at an Asian country and the head of a festival very proudly took me to a place that served very, very special beef and virtually nothing else. It was, um, he was very excited about the dinner there. I wasn't going to be an asshole and say, no, I'm sorry, I can't eat that. I did. And it was delicious. It's not the taste of meat that I don't like, but you know, it was one night and uh, it was no big deal. I uh, am in it just because of my own personal beliefs and not to please the vegan police. Okay, that's this edition of Postmortem AMA. You can send us your questions on Instagram at postmortemgram or on Twitter at postmortemmg or directly to our producer Joe Russo at Joe Russo Tweets. And I hope I will see you in the nightmare cinema. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 